1: You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and enjoy.
2: I'm so excited to be able to introduce our two guests tonight. Um, uh, The unreality of memory, which is came out last week, August 11th, is a quote literary guide to life in the pre-apocalypse. These essays take the long view of centuries and the grand frame of global disaster and national collapse. They also take the short view of these months, weeks, days. They take up the magnifying glass and give us access to a kind of uncanny granularity. Um, We're so lucky to have Lisa Gabbard with us tonight. She is the author of the poetry collections, Leur Bleu, The Self, Unstable, and The French Exit. Her debut collection of essays, The Word Pretty was published in 2018 The Self-Unstable was chosen by The New Yorker as one of the best books of 2013. Gabbert's work has appeared in The New Yorker, Boston Review, The Paris Review Daily, Pacific Standard, Guernica, The All, Electric Literature, The Harvard Review, and many other venues. She lives in Denver. Um, And we're super excited to have here tonight in conversation with Elisa Brandon Taylor. Um, It's also a great treat. Uh, Brandon Taylor is the author of the novel Real Life, which was a New York Times editor's choice. His work has appeared in Guernica, American Short Fiction, Gulf Coast, BuzzFeed Reader, O, oh, The Oprah Magazine, Gay Mag, The New Yorker Online, The Literary Review, and elsewhere. He is the senior editor of Electric Literature's Recommended Reading and a staff writer at BitHub. He holds graduate degrees from the University of Wisconsin Madison and the Iowa Writers Workshop, where he was an Iowa Arts Fellow. Um, so let's have much warmth. I think there's already some like pouring from the chat, just like great gusts of it um so let's have a warm welcome for lisa gabbert how can i make myself disappear just like that okay thank you for your patience yeah.
0: <laughs> hi everyone thank you all for coming i've been really so excited for this conversation with brandon i'm so happy he's here i see lots of people i know in the chat and i'm so happy you all made it um it's been a wild week i feel like i've been waiting for this book to come out forever um and now it's out and it's quickly receding into the past (laughs) so i'm going to read just a short um piece of an essay so then we can get to the q a um i'm going to read the opening section of this essay called the great mortality which um i feel like this is in a way like too on the nose because it's about like plagues and pandemics and obviously you all know <laughs> we're in one it's a plague year uh but this opening isn't really about you know well it's definitely not about this plague because i read it before this plague happened um, and it's not uh, it's not, uh, let's just I, I hope it's not too too relevant and too upsetting trigger warning i guess um the great mortality one day in april I filled a glass with tap water from our kitchen sink and noticed that it tasted unusually good, a bit creamy somehow, a bit savory in the manner of club soda, which is superior to seltzer because of the sodium. It seemed especially thirst quenching, yet so tasty I kept drinking more of it. A brewer I know told me Colorado water has more mineral content in the spring months due to mountain runoff, which might explain the change in flavor. I love that idea but the explanation didn't hold up. My husband John thought our water tasted the same as ever. More strikingly, every liquid I drank started to taste better to me. Wines tasted richer and more buttery. Cheap wines tasted like they had been aged for years in oak. Bourbon tasted sweeter and creamier too, almost like coconut. Canned seltzer tasted especially great, like an indulgence instead of a substitute. This went on for weeks. The internet told me I might be pregnant or diabetic. I was quite sure neither was true. Instead, I grew increasingly suspicious that I might have a brain tumor. I mentioned the symptom to my brother in a text. I think I have brain cancer. My palate suddenly changed. He responded right away. I had that. It was a virus. Everything tasted weird and I couldn't handle spicy food at all. It lasted a few weeks. It didn't sound like what I had, but I was heartened nonetheless. But if it was a virus, why didn't anyone else have it? I mentioned it to everyone I saw, hoping for a sign of recognition. It's not unpleasant, I'd always say. Finally, about three weeks in, John and I were reading on the couch. He took a sip of water and literally smacked his lips. Mmm, he said, that tastes delicious. Oh my God, I grabbed his arm, you have the virus. John's virus, if it was a virus, didn't last as long, or maybe he just wasn't as attuned to it as I was. In any case, it went away for both of us. Boxed wine tasted cheap again. Years ago, when I was in grad school, I saw the philosopher Daniel Dennett deliver a lecture about memes, memes in the Richard Dawkins sense, a unit of cultural transmission. He talked about a kind of parasite. I'm going to be embarrassed if I mispronounce this, because Brandon would know. Um, Dicrocelium dendriticum, or the lancet liver fluke, that infects ants. It makes them want to crawl to the tops of tall blades of grass. What does desire feel like to an ant? But that is not the end goal for the parasite. Those ants high up in the grass are more likely to be eaten by grazing cows, and that's what the parasite wants. This mechanism is called parasitic mind control. The fluke wants to be inside the cow. It thrives in the guts of the cow and then gets the reproductive benefit of being shit out into the pasture, where it can affect more ants. Both parasites and microparasites, viruses and bacteria can hijack our minds. They make us act weird. Toxoplasma gondii, a parasite found in cat feces, makes mice less afraid of cats. This is an evolutionary strategy, making it easier for the parasite to get from the mouse to the cat. It can spread to people too, where it may increase risk-taking in general. One bizarre study found that people, presumably cat owners with toxoplasmosis are more likely to major in business. An NBC news story suggested optimistically that the parasite may give people the courage they need to become entrepreneurs. If true, and I doubt it, That would be an extreme case of a microscopic parasite altering the course of your whole life. But ordinary viruses change our behavior, too. A 2010 study found that people became more sociable in the 48 hours after they were exposed to the flu virus, the period when they are contagious but not symptomatic. The infected hosts, researchers noted, were significantly more likely to head out to bars and parties. Even symptoms we think of as purely physical reflexes can be construed as behavior changes. In Guns, Germs, and Steel, Jared Diamond notes that many of our symptoms of disease actually represent ways in which some damned clever microbe modifies our bodies and our behavior such that we become enlisted to spread microbes. The tuberculosis bacterium, for example, makes us want to cough, atomizing it into breathable air. According to the Mayo Clinic, this can happen when a tubercular patient coughs, speaks, sneezes, spits, laughs, or sings. This makes me wonder if consumption ever makes patients giggly or more likely to burst into song, despite the chest pain and malaise. One of the creepiest behavioral changes caused by a virus is hydrophobia, a symptom of classic encephalitic rabies, also known as furious rabies. It's not an exaggeration people and animals infected with rabies become morbidly terrified of water. Or perhaps more accurately, there are two minds about water. They both want it and can't stand the thought or sight of it. It's the opposite of my virus then, which made beverages extra appealing. Here's how Bill Wasik and Monica Murphy describe it in their book, Rabid, a cultural history of the world's most diabolical virus. Present the hydrophobic patient with a cup of water and desperately though he wants to drink it, his entire body rebels against the consummation of this act. The outstretched arm jerks away just as is about to bring the cup to the parched lips. Other times the entire body convulses at the thought. Why does this happen? It's not so you'll die of thirst. The virus's goal is not to kill you, though it does do that. Once symptoms appear, close to 100% of rabies patients die but to spread. The sole mission of a virus, according to Connie Goldsmith, author of Pandemic, How Climate, the Environment, and Superbugs Increase the Risk, is to get inside a cell and turn it into a factory to produce new viruses. Viruses, unlike bacteria and parasites, are not even alive, yet they too have desires. The rabies virus takes up in the animal's spit. According to an article in the Merck Manual of Diagnosis and Therapy, Most people become restless, confused, and uncontrollably excited. Their behavior may be bizarre. They may hallucinate and have insomnia. Saliva production greatly increases. Spasms of the muscles in the throat and larynx occur because rabies affects the area in the brain that controls swallowing, speaking, and breathing. The spasms can be excruciatingly painful. A slight breeze or an attempt to drink water can trigger the spasms. Thus, people with rabies cannot drink. The spread of the virus to the salivary glands explains the telltale foaming at the mouth and rabid dogs, and the spread to the brain explains their rage, which drives them to attack and bite. This rabid madness and its transmission through biting gave birth to mythological monsters from zombies to werewolves and vampires. The association of vampires with bats stems from their acting as a reservoir host for rabies. Bats can carry the virus without dying from it. Rabies like malaria, Zika, typhus, bubonic plague, and all flus is a zoonosis, a disease that makes the leap from human to animal. Sorry, from animal to human. That leap, the transmission is called spillover. In his book, Ebola, The Natural and Human History of a Deadly Virus, David Quammen describes zoonosis as a word of the future, destined for heavy use in the 21st century. Dangerous infectious diseases persist only when they have a reservoir host. We were able to eradicate smallpox, common notes, because it's not a zoonosis. It only infects humans. And once we've cured them all, it has nowhere else to hide. The reservoir host for Ebola is still not known. It was initially spread to humans when hungry villagers in Africa ate infected apes. But apes are not an unharmed, oblivious reservoir. Where there are outbreaks of Ebola in humans, there are also dead gorillas. It seems likely that, as with the Lysa viruses that cause rabies, the host is some kind of bat. When Kwaman went hunting for reservoirs in Bangladesh, the epidemiologist Jonathan Epstein told him, keep your mouth closed when you look up. You don't want an Ebola bat flying overhead to shit in your mouth. I always forget how much feces there is in this essay. During the 1950s and 60s, there was great optimism that the world would soon be rid of all deadly infectious disease. The United States spent huge sums of money on a campaign to eliminate malaria in the so-called third world, an act of charity in a way, since malaria was not a threat in affluent countries. The plan not only failed, perhaps we gave up too soon, or perhaps it was an impossible task, but actually made the problem worse. The campaign reduced local immunity to malaria while the virus evolved resistance to known treatments such as chloroquine. At the same time, heavy use of pesticides killed off many beneficial insects while the mosquitoes became resistant to the chemicals. As Lori Garrett puts it in The, in the Coming Plague, newly emerging diseases in a world out of balance, almost overnight, resistant mosquito populations appeared all over the world. Rachel Carson, the author of Silent Spring said at the time, the insect enemy has been made stronger by our efforts. After seeming to die down, cases of malaria resurged now in a new iatrogenic form, created as a result of medical treatment. Malaria had become something strange and ill-defined. What is malaria? Kent Campbell, a doctor with the Centers for Disease Control has asked. In many parts of Africa, it's endemic and omnipresent, but often asymptomatic. Previously, children with malaria either died or became largely immune. Now children might survive, but lapse into fatal anemia years later, requiring blood transfusions. Not ideal when AIDS is epidemic too. Further complicating matters when a child in Africa has a fever, it's standard procedure to give the child anti But just because a child has malarial parasites does not necessarily mean that any given fever is caused by malaria. In this way, it's like climate change. Every bad storm feels as though it must be related to global warming, but you can't say with complete certainty that any given storm is the direct result of climate change. And as Campbell says, we cannot continue to treat every fever as if it's malaria because the roster of drugs is getting shorter. Yet a malarial fever can lead to death and malaria is still a top 10 cause of death in low income countries. To answer his own question about the nature of malaria, Campbell eventually concluded that malaria is a disease that responds to antimalarial drugs. He did not name a specific drug since the drugs have to change. It made me think of a conversation I had years ago with an ex-boyfriend, a physics major, who told me that temperature is not as simple a concept as it seems. It is not synonymous with heat or energy, he said. Temperature, essentially, is what thermometers measure. I never really understood this, but I think about it often. Or maybe I should say, what I think about is the elegant way the construction reduces what we understand. Okay, I'll stop there.
3: (laughs) Amazing, it was great, oh my God. Where to even begin, I mean um this is not the first question i wrote down but since you did read from that essay what i love so much about it is that it kind of like surfaces this idea that you put forth in in some of the earlier essays where you talk about um that we used to have this idea that progress would usher us into like this utopic future where there was no more danger yeah but that by creating all of these new things, we're actually also inventing the means of destruction. You know, so you, there's this great line. I forget who you who you quote when you say that, like inventing the ship invented the shipwreck. And um oh, really go. yes, I'm proud of myself
0: um, remembering that.
3: <laughs> you nailed it. Um, and and you know, sort of, you got to that passage, the part of the passage that you just read, where you're talking about how. Like, yes, malarial, anti-malarial drugs, but now there are all of these other complications that we didn't have before because now people are surviving. And now we're we're sort of not only shortening the roster of drugs to treat these awful sort of invisible microscopic catastrophes, but we're also inventing like new sort of lingering, <laughs> like new ways of being on the edge of extinction, essentially. Yeah. So. I guess <laughs> yeah. like this isn't where I plan to start, but I'd love to begin our conversation on this, que- like this question of like, yeah. We used to think progress would save us, and now it's just new ways to die.
0: Right? Oh gosh, yeah. There, I, I can't remember which essay it is, but there's an essay where I talk about like being very invested in this kind of techno optimism that was very popular when I was in college, which is like around the turn of the century. Let's <laughs> say <laughs> the turn of the recent century. Um, and there was a class, it was like a, it was a computer science class, but it was more like kind of philosophy of computer science. And we read this Ray Kurzweil book that was all about like the singularity and how like, oh, we're, we're so close. Like any minute now, like <laughs> technolo- technological progress is going to explode to the degree that it's just going to start solving all of our problems. Like we won't even have to do anything. <laughs> it's so utopian, as you say. And, you know, and I, like, I really believed in that. I was like, seems convincing. <laughs> um, I don't any longer believe in that. And I've actually come to think of the 20th century as kind of being like, just almost this contained century of like such continuous progress that you can see why there was that illusion. Um, and then I think it just kind of stopped. Like, Sometimes I think it's kind of around 9 11 that seems too convenient. <laughs> but sometimes I think, like, just like, what great progress have we had besides like the iPhone in this century? <laughs> you know, like a lot of the things that seem like progress are just sort of like slight improvements, like, well, we found some new antibiotics because the old one stopped working. Um, but yeah, it just kind of feels a little bit like we're treading on quicksand a lot of the time, and that the solutions are just as likely to destroy us as the problems we're trying to solve. It was kind of late in my research process that I found this book called um, *Normal Accidents* mm. by Charles Perrow, and his whole theory—it's very like famous as sort of engineering circles because it's about how the fact that if you introduce a safety system into any any system, basically, you're gonna Increase the complexity of the system, and therefore it's going to be more likely to fail because it's more complex. And so um, that that became like such a great metaphor for me for like what the whole book ended up being about was just sort of like all all of our solutions become problems.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, totally. I think there's a really great um, not to be like a podcast white man about it, but there's a really great episode of ninety nine percent invisible. I think about that the sort of introduction of safety also just like makes things work worse because of all the reasons that seem really obvious and self-evident when you're on the outside of such a system. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I also sort of wonder about the the degradation and and sort of this sort of cultural optimism around technology. I wonder if part of that is because like we've invented instruments that are now fine enough to deduce the ways that we're degrading. (laughs) Like, and you know, like it feels like what the major, the sort of major revelation of like the 21st century is like our ability to sort of like introspect and be like, yeah, we're not doing great. Like we, we have, (laughs) you know, like for the first time in like, you know, human history, perhaps we have like these machines that are capable of storing like these huge tracts of history and not just like, one history, or one version of a history, but we're collating, you know, right. all the. <laughs> we're able to collate all of these various like historical phenomena and sort of really look at them and line them up and be like, oh, we're actually not killing it the way that we, we might have hoped. Um, yeah.
0: Well, so uh, I mean, no shade on podcasts. I was listening to a podcast today. Basically, every day when I go on a walk, I listen to a podcast. And it was the New York Times book review podcast, which I know you listen to too, but they were talking to somebody who wrote this book about hurricanes. Mm. And um, Pamela Paul asked him like, well, you know, our technology, it must be really good now. Like we can predict when hurricanes are going to happen. It's amazing. And he was like, well, sure. It's amazing. Except that. Like, who, like, who cares if we can predict that it's coming if our emergency response completely sucks. And, like, like, all we do is just watch it come and then we let it destroy cities and um, people are just sort of, like, abandoned to their flooded homes.
3: Yeah, I mean, I mean, like, the great, like, we're so good at seeing and we just don't act, which feels like a really, it sounds like one of the more, like, pessimistic Philip K. Dick stories. Except we live in it, um, but I guess to sort of back up a little bit to like the the first question I had. So like in my thinking about this book, I I needed to create like a false dichotomy to get my head around it. And so what I've done is I've sort of written questions that deal in like matter or like the subject material of the book, and questions that deal in the form and sort of the more techniquey things. Um, just That's my know that- favorite. <laughs> Just know that I know that that is like a false dichotomy and like you can't divorce the two. But for my own like yeah. jeopardy brain. Um, I love that. And, and so my first question is about this idea of the grammar of disaster and the grammar of catastrophe. So as I was reading the book, I kept writing in the margins. Um, disaster is a retrospective object because often when you were sort of recounting the disasters it was like in the past tense and everything you know like comprehension was you know at work or whatever and so but then I had this realization that like oh perhaps disaster itself isn't retrospective perhaps what is causing this feeling of retrospection is the act of comprehension and like the act of writing an essay in some ways like the act of writing seems like it can never be con- truly contemporary to the disaster it's trying to encompass. Um, and I think about the really, those really amazing and also cringy excerpts that you included from the New Yorker writers like post 9-11, like they're sort of, and even like two day, maybe like not that long after 9-11, they were already sort of talking in this like nostalgic, like telescopic- um, and, like
0: aestheticizing it, right? and this yes, weird totally. way.
3: Um and so my my question is, um what do you make of like, one, do you think that an essay or like a piece of writing can ever be like truly contemporary to like the instant of a disaster? And two, if not, like, what do you make of the tension between disaster and the form of like the written word, like trying to get the written word around the essay? and like how do you do you find that to yeah. be like a productive tension?
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean i I will say like I'm. I just feel a lot of like discomfort and uncertainty with processing things that are happening right now. And that's why like I don't consider myself a journalist. I've you know, I've tried to do sort of pseudo journalist journalistic work where I can, but um it's so not my strong suit and like mm-hmm. I don't even like talking to people, I mean I like talking to people, I like talking to you, but I don't like talking to like a source because I just, I don't have the training to like be objective mm-hmm. and I end up feeling like I'm manipulating them or I'll I'll start to, I'll feel guilty, like I feel like well, if I disagree with them I'm gonna feel bad about this, um, so like all of that I try to avoid and I would much prefer to like process material from like books and um newspapers from the time or, you know, uh, scholarly medical journals even. I, I love stuff like that because it's so like artless. <laughs> so I'm like, I, I can do all the artistic part. <laughs> um But yeah, so I I prefer to kind of like, even though I was, you know, writing this book post-2016, thinking about like the disasters that we're living through um i much prefer to go into the past and think about like well what can we learn from you know the bubonic plague or the 1918 flu um, that might apply to a present or future pandemic because um because like all the like because of all the processing processing that has already been done but i can also give myself as much time as i need to process it so like i think that's kind of what i do with the essay Mm -hmm. form is like i try to absorb a lot of information and then Process it almost like almost unconsciously, but um, I, I'll just kind of think about it for like weeks and then like finally I'll find, oh, I'm starting to sort of write sentences in my head and that's when I know I'm ready to write it. But I I'll, I'll say that I'm like working on an essay for a really long time when I'm not actually like, <laughs> typing, like typing the draft, you know? I'm just thinking about it and thinking about it and trying to figure out what I want to say. And um, Like it never starts with an argument. It's more just like, oh, I want to think about this topic or this subject. Um, and then if I end up making an, ar- an argument, it just kind of comes out at the very end. <laughs> so yeah, I think th- the benefit, the reason that it feels timely to this moment is because like all disasters have, so much overlap and so much similarity. And we make the same idiotic mistakes over and over and over again. So we can learn from the mistakes we made Mm. in the Challenger disaster. And that can help us get through today probably more so than thinking about the mistakes that we're making right now.
3: Yeah. I mean, even in that really, I think, excellent first essay, it just, it struck me that, you know, there's that moment where you talk about how, You were sort of just like moving through the routines of your life as like 9-11 was happening. And like your sort of recounting of your own self was like this very sort of stunted, affectless, I couldn't process it moment. And that was sort of laid side by side with, like, this really, I thought, like, really gorgeous, like, processing of it. And you weren't just, like, processing the event. You were processing your inability to process the event. And it just, like, the way that those two things, like, rub against each other, you know, the way that we, in a moment when we experience or witness something horrible, like we just can't process it. And it's only in retrospect that we can see that we weren't processing it. But yeah. if you we were to sort of be on the ground day one, like with this sort of pandemic, with the moment that's sort of encircling all of us, like I'm not like actively going through like, I'm not processing <laughs> the, you know, the COVID, but like when I'm like two years from now, if there is a two years from now, perhaps I might look back and be like, whoa, I was really not processing a lot of things, you know? So there's something that's almost embedded in the grammar of the way that we talk about disasters and catastrophes that feels like not only, like you said, like not only like retrospective, but like a like we can't just talk about yeah. the past. We have to talk about what we mean when we talk about, the, the, right. the, sort of the, the what we talk about when we talk about disaster. Um,
0: you made me think of your great essay that you wrote recently kind of processing the beginning of the pandemic and all the anxiety and the panic um, and how it, like, I remember you said it just sort of came out in this big, like, oh, God, I have an idea for an essay. I'm still typing. I'm still typing. I'm still typing. It does, like, it's like it's, it's almost like it happens all at once. That, yeah. Like, that understanding.
3: Yeah, it's like it's not even like you started like you said it's not an argument it's like a set of feelings that cohere around a vague idea of an idea like it's yeah. not even an idea it's like an abstraction of an idea um yes. Yes. my my sort of follow-up question can slash conjoined twin to this question <laughs> has to do with like visual media and there's a way that like in the way that an essay cannot be truly contemporary to the instant of the disaster because it has to do all the sort of comprehension processing that we just talked about but there's a way that like an image can be somehow like an image kind of like captures and freezes everything but in in another way like the image doesn't have the context that an essay can do and so I was really interested in the way that you used image both like you know some ekphrasis is happening on the page I will say but also like actual literal visual images embedded in the text and so I guess like I'd love to hear what your thoughts about, like, that impulse to include pictures in the book and why and what you think they're bringing in a way that, yeah. how do you think they sort of complicate and enrich the text?
0: Yeah. So, um, yeah, I want to be, you know, I want to be careful not to use, like, ableist language, but um, I do think, like, culturally, since most people are cited, there is, like, a phenomenon where Things that we can see, things that we can photograph and record and reproduce and put on the news, put on TV, make movies out of, you know, disaster movies based on real disasters. Um, there's something about that process that kind of codifies memory and um, makes it feel like more real than real. Mm-hmm. I was doing a little kind of podcast conversation. We're so we're so we're such podcast people. <laughs> I was I was recording a like a like a guest interview on a podcast yesterday with um, Adam price on his podcast Fans notes. And he was saying that he completely forgot about the Columbia disaster, like just completely forgot about it. Or like he either merged it in his mind with the challenger, or it was like too close to nine 11 and he just didn't have room in his mind for it. And I, it occurred to me like, Oh, it's probably just because there were no visuals for it. Like it wasn't filmed, but the challenger explosion was filmed. And so like, Everybody, yeah. like, rem- even if you didn't see it at the time, you saw it at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Columbia disaster, it happened when they were coming back into the atmosphere and that wasn't being filmed. And so there's no, like, popular visual that became associated with it. And so people just kind of forgot about it. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought about that a lot, just in kind of, in the terms of, like, like, why is it that, movies and TV and recordings make reality feel more real. Mm. Uh, I mean, I I guess it's because we all have the same visual reference. Um, And, you know, I think that could apply to things that aren't visual, like certain phrases that everybody knows, like, you know, everybody can say, oh yeah, Shakespeare, because we all know a few Shakespeare phrases. Like, there's something about having that kind of shared memory that makes it feel like, well, that's a real thing. Um, And yeah, I think, so, I think the reason I wanted to include images in the book, besides just being like, um, you know, a dork who likes like Sebald and Ben Lerner, I like, <laughs> I, want, I want to do one of those books. Um, they were sort of like images that I found really haunting, like mm-hmm. almost to the point of like, yeah, almost to the point of like offensively haunting.
2: <laughs>
0: you know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. Like they're, they're they're really intense, you know, like the woman with the, um, with the scars on her back from the kimono. Mm-hmm.
3: And you kind of don't see them coming. Like you kind of like are flipping through the book, reading, 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 and then you like stumble upon the picture of the man falling, who's jumped from yeah. you know the towers, or or the picture of the the, the sort of mushroom clouds. You like, yeah. like the way that the images kind of like appear and haunt the text. There are these kind of like spectral projections, um, and I found that like really interesting. And this ties into um, another set of questions I have. So like there are all of these like moments in the essays where you unearth like really like unsavory aesthetic questions regarding like horrible moments in global history um and i'm thinking about the way you talk about the various aesthetic decisions that went into the recreation of the titanic sinking like you're sort of careful the way that you sort of carefully walk us through like they made these choices there are lights there are no people It sort of sink. it sounds really um the way that you sort of carefully chronicle the 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 aesthetic decisions of that titanic recreation you know that thing that oppenheimer had considered the visual impact of the bomb to be as important as like you know the power and the force of the bomb as indeed it was like an extension of um the bomb's power and force um and i guess like in a way the aesthetics you know, the aesthetics are how a war or disaster find its voice. It's how its impact gets propagated through the culture. Um, So I'd love to hear your thoughts about the aesthetics of catastrophe um, and and why we're made so uncomfortable thinking about how some disasters get better PR than others. Like you just said about the (laughs) the challenge or the column, you know, like some disasters get really great PR, you know, like for example, here in Iowa, an inland hurricane swept through the state and like a quarter of the people didn't have power for four or more days. And like, that's not on the news, you know? Um, So (laughs) I'd love to hear. People are just
0: ignoring it. I mean, I I guess because I'm a writer, I feel like I know a lot of people in Iowa. (laughs) I'm like, it Seems like people are doing really badly. Like, yeah. It seems like I
3: it's mean, really but it bad. happens. You know, it happens all the time in the sort of algorithmic hierarchies, and some disasters right. propagate, and some disasters don't propagate. So I'd love to talk about like the aesthetics of <laughs> catastrophe.
0: Yeah, I think so. Something that I was trying to do here, and you know, who knows if I was successful or not, but like, I wanted to put a microscope on that tendency and critique it while also um, not being self-righteous about it because I totally do it too. Like, I think everybody Mm. is guilty of it. Um, So yeah, I think the reason I ended up putting the first essay first is because like, that's where the obsession with disaster started. I I saw this Titanic video and I was just like, so creeped out Um, and I had been like, was watching it like waiting for the moment when the ship breaks apart which i can't even remember if i knew that that happened until i saw like the james cameron movie titanic (laughs) but i was like i'm just i'm just sticking around to see that part and it was at like the very very end of the video um and then i was just like oh my gosh this is so weird this is fascinating i want to learn more about titanic and i I remember doing this before with 9-11 how you can really go into these like rabbit holes because they're fan sites like mm. I swear that's about that's the best term for them but like people are like I'm a fan of 9-11 <laughs> like I, I have a website where I just you know document my obsession with this disaster and there's diagrams and computer yeah. animations showing like how the beams melted and like exactly where the impact hit um and so yeah you can just you can really get into it and it, it ends up feeling like sort of like a video game kind of reality um so yeah, basically I wanted to kind of like dissect my own ten- tendency to do that while also, you know, I do want to be clear that I think it's, it's bad. Like, <laughs> I think there are certain human tendencies that are like completely natural, almost like involuntary and uncontrollable. And yet like we should think about them and try to, and, I don't know, not if not stop them, at least be aware of them. and. Um, the kinds of things that they make us do. Um, But yeah, I don't, I mean, you know, one of my, one of the problems with this book is like, I don't have an answer. Like I don't have a solution to that. I don't really know how to fix it other than just kind of thinking about it and being aware of it and commenting on it.
3: Yeah, I mean, but it, to me, it was like, I mean, maybe it's because I'm chaotic, which, you know, I, <laughs> I immediately was like, yes, Elisa, get them. Because <laughs> I mean, it's true. That, and you see it play out on social media all the time where, like, someone will post a video and they'll be like, oh, my God, there was a horrible hurricane that happened. And then someone will be like, well, there was a hurricane in this part of the world, too, and no one said anything. Like, there's a kind of, like, one-upsmanship and, and my, my yes. first impulse is to always be kind of like, why are we doing all this competition? But then I think well, like, well, yes, because but because of like capitalism and empire, like you really do have yeah. to fight for eyeballs. And so there's right. this horrible idea of like disasters, catastrophes, famine, like they're fighting for
0: eyeballs. And it, it, just- does. it turns into like competitive empathy. It really does. And like, I mean, I think... Like on social media people compete to be like the most offended, the, the most damaged, and um, you know that thing where people will like share a video and say like don't look away. I'm, I'm always kind of like I don't I don't I don't know that I agree I need to like watch a video versus like reading a description of what happened if you know. Like, like, why do I need to actually feel the pain? I mean, maybe I do. Like, I th- it's arguable. It is arguable. But, mm. like, I just, I do think that gets into almost kind of like anesthetization of pain. Like, if, as though if you can't sleep that night or the video makes you cry, then like, you're you're going to take some further action or be a better activist. And like, for some people, I think that's true. I think for some people, like, emotions radicalize you, but for others, it's kind of like, it's just throwing emotions at the problem and not offering any kind of solution.
3: Yeah. I mean, it, it really does feel like, and and you know, this book helped me sort of get my own thinking around this, like more solid and crystallized, but it really feels like we're subjecting the sort of vicissitudes of the global calamity to like the algorithmic sorting of the marketplace.
0: And that yes. feels like a
3: really, really bad. <laughs>
0: Oh yeah, God. it's so uncomfortable. It's so yeah. uncomfortable. And I mean, like, yeah, it is it is it is weird. And it often feels like random to me, like what ends up getting the kind of bulk of the attention. And there's actually there's sort of a whole section about that at the end of the book. Like, like, how, how do these algorithms work? Like, why do we all decide like, this is what we all need to pay attention to right now and not this other thing? Um, and you know my hope is always just like well somebody's actually paying attention to it even if it's not <laughs> yeah, <laughs> even If it's not everybody on my feed yeah um, but yeah i don't know how those things work it just it just seems to it's one of those things like you know when you see just like one version of a tweet and it's like a joke you've heard a hundred times but for some reason that's the version <laughs> that goes viral like for like it's totally random i think sometimes the catastrophes that get attention—it feels like that. It's just some kind of random trip. Like, oh, you hit the, you hit the viral jackpot.
3: Yeah, and it really does feel like because we're embedded in this sort of Abrahamic, like very Protestant context in America that, like, we we presume, like we we put a lot of import into the happenstance virality. It's like, oh yes, you were anointed, yeah. you were chosen, you were plucked by the the claw machine of fate up into notoriety. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, like, and yeah, it's. I mean-
0: Luck in the past feels like fate, it does.
3: Yeah, totally. And it's all just like this retrospective construct. We're all just validating our own biases. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, I I do want to get into my questions reform because I'm just like obsessed with this book. So... (laughs) Like one of the things that I found really interesting about the book, there's that moment in the first essay where you talk about watching the Titanic video and you're like, there's like this really great line where you're like, it's really long. So I skipped around and looked at the parts <laughs> that interested me. Um, and that to me became a that kind of like for me unlocked the structure of the book because in a way, like you're you're kind of scrubbing around in these various ideas and finding the the interesting or like the activated parts and then you're bringing them into relation and you're thinking about them and then when you get bored with it you kind of like associate away from it to something else that's activated and and interesting that is in resonance with the thing and so the whole book becomes this collage of like like fragments you've clipped and put together and and sort of assembled um and so I'd love to hear you talk about the form and like what you think this kind of collage structure or like the way that you collate things together. I'm just like fascinated by your mind essentially. So just like, tell me how it works.
0: Um, Well, yeah, I guess I just realized that I, it's actually very similar to the way I write poems now too. It wasn't always, but um, I mean, I like, I like my writing to be like, you know kind of short i mean i guess these aren't particularly short for essays but the book is pretty short um and like really dense and like intense in that way like Mm -hmm. like something that's just like you know like something that you eat that's almost too strong (laughs) um like i like every sentence to feel important every paragraph to feel important um and you know that's of course just like by my own standards like Feels that way to me i don't i don't know how other people read it but um so the yeah the way that i do that tends to be like only focusing on the things i find interesting and leaving as much out as possible so yeah i don't i don't like to give a ton of context like i don't think that people need the full history of rabies to be interested in like why why rabies makes you <laughs> afraid to drink water like just that in and of itself is interesting you know um it's it's kind of like when people you know on social media like share like one paragraph in, out of an essay and just mm-hmm. in totally in isolation with no context whatever it can be really interesting and so like I like paragraphs and sections I kind I tend to think in these um, in these larger pieces more than sentences even more like I think of the paragraph as a form and I I, I really think through like sections almost as movements like, like mm. a movement and a piece of music um and I just like every part to be as interesting to myself as I can make it essentially um and you know I'm kind of the same when I'm writing poems I'm very slow with poems you know it's a lot fewer words than an essay and it's usually <laughs> on one page but like I want like every line to be good yeah. and sometimes if I like try to sit down and make myself write a poem I'm like I don't have 20 good lines in me today. I don't, I have two, Mm. so I'm gonna write those and like I'll have to come back to this when I have another interesting thought. (laughs) And it like takes time, like processing time and lived experience to like come up with interesting thoughts. And so there is a very, there's a collector's mindset there. Um, I remember reading something very similar, and I was reading this selected Rilke recently, and you know, he wrote a novel, Do you know about this? No. I don't, I don't even know how to pronounce it. It's like The Notebooks of Malt. I, somebody will have to tell me someday. I don't know how it's pronounced. <laughs> it's a made-up name. But it's like fake notebooks, and so it feels, you know, really kind of autofictiony. y But there's this part where he talks about, like, oh, you, you, have to, you have to savor, like, every memory and collect them over the course of your whole life, like mm. the breeze coming through the window and that one beautiful flower. And then, like, one day, decades from now, you'll write a great poem out of it. <laughs> Um, And that sounds super corny, but like it's really good because it's Roca, (laughs) but that's kind of how I feel like when I go on a walk or when I'm reading books, I'm always taking notes or just kind of like thinking my thoughts and waiting for something good to come along. And then I sort of tend to collect it in a document or a notebook of, of some type. And then when I start to see like a pattern. Um, and a relationship among enough of those thoughts and ideas, where I find like, oh, I'm, I, I'm actually nursing an obsession. I just didn't realize it. All these things are sort of related. That's when I'll decide, mm. okay, I, I want to write an essay about this, or I want to turn this into a poem. It kind of depends what the relationship looks like. But um, yeah, it's very like, it's like curating my own mind. <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, I have so many follow up questions. Um, <laughs> but I want to leave time for like a Q and A. Um, so like, I'll make this my last question. Um so on the I know on the, the matter. I was so,
0: fast. I
3: know. so on the matter <laughs> of um internet rabbit holes, mm-hmm. uh, you talked a little bit about how you can it's possible to sort of end up down these tubes and like the, the essays do kind of brim with a kind of feral curiosity and just like a sort of like endless hunger for more facts and and like that that the um the message board for people who fear large objects like <laughs> you know you end up in some really incredibly interesting places so like that's a question i have and i want to sort of do a mashup when i when i combine it with this other question i have which is that these essays weren't written at the same time um but they do seem to iterate over a set of images or a set of ideas and so i wonder about because you do have this tendency to sort of like ping from one obsession or one rabbit hole to another and you've mentioned your sort of collector's mindset, like when you're putting together a collection like this, are those kind of large morphological touchstones visible to you? And do you curate the collection toward that? Or is that something that just like emerges when you feel like you've hit a critical mass of material that, that seems to talk to, you know, seems to talk to yeah. each other? Like, so like, did these resonances come in your revision process or were they already the kind of landmarks by which you shaped the
0: book. Yeah. Oh, it So it's hard to say now because right? <laughs> <laughs> it all gets confused. But I, I think both. I think it starts, it comes in from both directions. So I did write a book proposal for this book. So I had to kind of think through a structure before I'd completed writing it. I think I'd written maybe five of the essays. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I kind of tried to build a book around that. And finished book ended up being pretty different like that was two sections and i ended up doing three sections and left some stuff out and added some new stuff in combined a couple of essays into one stuff like that um so i had some sense like i knew that there would be a little bit of overlap between some essays it just tends to be how my mind works like i just used the same metaphor yesterday but it's like a venn diagram but like a chain where there's Mm -hmm. always just like of overlap and and that yeah. helps me organize the book a lot is i love like <laughs> here's something that i touched on in the last essay now let's expand on it this one and then that's how the next one is connected um so yeah and then so but also when i'm working like you those same obsessions just keep, keep just, they just kept coming back to me um that's just if like there's a line that resonates to me like there were Parts of that um, Alexievich book, Voices of, Sh- wait, Chernobyl Prayer, Voices from Chernobyl. I know the mm. translation is different. I I had like a UK version. Um, Chernobyl prayer is what my version was called. But there were certain quotes in there that were just like so apt to me <laughs> um, when thinking through like, how do people process disaster? Um, how quickly do things start to feel normal? You know, people like can get used to anything no matter how insane it is that I kept, thinking of it and I I think that there I ended up feeling like okay I I referenced that one (laughs) that one Chernobyl thing like too many times now like I think my editor I was also like is this on purpose (laughs) and I was like yes but you're right it's bad so like I had to kind of dial it back a little bit in my final edits Um, but some of it is just that like I'm like I love this quote and like it feels relevant to everything I think about all the time (laughs) so that kind of creates that overlap um, but yeah, there were there were some kind of like echoes, I guess you could say, that I sort of intentionally set up because I knew that I wanted to do an essay about pandemics and plagues. <laughs> and then I was like, well, wouldn't it be cool if I also wrote an essay about um, like mass hysteria? Because that's mm-hmm. like, you know, the, the, the plague of the mind. <laughs> and, you know, there's this kind of balance between the first section, which is all very exterior Kind of macro disasters and then um the, sec- the second section is more kind of like what's wrong with us and our minds and the mm-hmm. way we think about these things and the way we cause them um the way we remember them and misremember them so that that was like a very intentional parallel but um yeah I think a, some of it is just sort of accidental because your brain does so much of the work when you're not even paying attention
3: <laughs> yeah I mean I you know I feel like you spend the first you know the first section of the book talking in so many brilliant ways about like the fungibility of like cultural memory in a way that like I, I sort of knew but I you know I often think of like cultural memory as being the sort of like long-term cachet of images or whatever and it it changes but it doesn't really change until we have like something going really catastrophic happen um, but I, I always consider like personal history and personal memory to be like much more fallible and fungible but the way that yeah. you sort of talk about the way that our cultural memory is also a constructed object that is subject to the mores and weirdnesses of like the cultures that give rise to, I'm like, oh right, it's all it's all made up. Like none it's of It's almost is-
0: worse because it's like, if we all have the mistakes in our own memory and then cultural memory is just compounding all of those mistakes. <laughs> totally,
3: totally. <laughs> I mean, it's like the RNA polymerase did not have its proofreading function in fact, but- um i mean it's just like but the way that you sort of juxtapose those two this sort of unreality of both of those kinds of memory i mean it's just like really masterfully done essentially i'm just like a really big fan thank um, you so much thank oh, you so yeah, please stop you're a genius um i guess we should get to these questions yeah. <laughs> this was,
2: has been so great yeah and maybe we can all go to the sort of like cosmic bar after this <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, yes, please. Um, Uh, there's some really good questions and folks should feel free to keep chiming in in the ask a question tab i know there's been some stuff that is like almost question adjacent in the chat um i kind of want to start with this one from um sarita which says uh she says with regard to this idea of whether or not disaster is contemporary since we've been living in an ongoing disaster for nearly half a year is this a new kind of disaster well not new journal of the plague year comes to mind but it feels like i and i think others she says but i don't want to speak for others I'm trying to contextualize from within the moment. So I guess like it's a, yeah, about a question about what is idea of the contemporary and duration?
0: Yeah, you know, I do think it feels new to us because, um, because of this idea of kind of American exceptionalism and American progress and, and power. Um, I, I think that, you know, I, so many people I know I've just believed for so long, like stuff like that doesn't happen here. Um, And even when like you could see it coming, like every step of the way, like there's still something in your mind that's like, but surely, surely something will happen to stop this before it gets really bad. Like, and the, there's these kind of like savior fantasies, you know, like I, I still indulge in them. I'm like, surely somebody will save the post office, surely. So, well, I mean, for years I thought like, surely somebody will stop Trump. He'll do something like bad enough that like, they'll have to step in and be like, okay, this has gone too far. Um, but you know, now like it's 2020 and um, it's been horrible. <laughs> and like, nobody nobody has saved us, nobody saved us. So yeah, there's just, I, I, I think, we, a lot of us, I mean, who grew up in America, at least, like, um, just grew up with that idea of, like, oh, everything's going to be safe here, you know, there's never going to be, like, a war here. Um, If you came here from another country, you might not have had that at all, and you probably could see this coming a mile away, and, um, but, so that, to me, is, is the new part, that kind of feeling like, it's not that it's new in history, but it's, it's new in my lifetime. Um, And yeah, I I don't know how to deal with any of this stuff. (laughs) I'm I'm no, I'm no better at it than any of you. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't know if that's a good answer.
3: Yeah, (laughs) I mean, just to chime in a little bit. I mean, I think that part of this idea of like, the disaster being constructed in retrospect, like, I do think, like, yes, like people are writing about it now as like a world historical, like -hmm. an event of world historical proportions, but there was a way in which like, I don't know if y'all remember, but those early pandemic essays were instantly irritating to everyone who read them because (laughs) it felt like someone was like trying to stand outside of the moment and to, and deliver, the dimension that would, like, lift this up into, like, world historical proportions. And it's, like, you can't write the history books yet. Like, you, all you can do is journal. Like, that's not the same. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, I do think that part of my, what irritated me about a lot of the early pandemic writing was, like, those essays were so, it's, like, who are you to try to stand outside of history and tell <laughs> and then, us what this
2: means?
0: <laughs> yeah, they all had the same tone. Like, and, like, I wrote some of that stuff and like I use the same tone too and I would read them and I would think this is good, but they all sound exactly the same. It was all this kind of like, um, sort of like dry wonder. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. No, totally. It was like poet voice, but an essay yeah. form. Like it was just like, wow, the cosmos, y'all. And it's like, <laughs> yes, it's been up there the whole
0: time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: Um, but but that's what I meant by sort of like you can't deliver the sort of world historical dimension to a catastrophe when it's happening because the history hasn't happened yet. Right.
0: I think also everyone is just so braced all the time for climate change stuff, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: especially
0: like, you know, there's just been so much like existential anxiety about that um, in the past, I feel like, especially five to 10 years. um, And when this like whole other, I mean, it's related, but still like a whole other disaster just kind of came seemingly out of nowhere for a lot of people. Um, And she's like, whoa, that's not even what I was bracing for. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Like, (laughs) you know, like, we'd like we barely even talked about climate change this year, I feel like. (laughs)
3: Well, I mean, between, you know, the pandemic and the murder wasps and the white elk coming out of the woods and the dead moose with, like, smallpox and it's, and then the anthrax and anthrax, the, like, yeah. it's, like, every time you turn on the news, 2020 is, like, it's got another one for
0: us. Extremely overwhelming.
2: Yeah. But well, that was a great question. Yeah, I've a lot of good questions in here. Um, I want to turn, there's some ones that I'm actually, I'm saving for the end that you can vote up questions. So if you want to have a say, feel free to vote up and some of them that I'm saving toward, for the uh, last question. But um, here's a question from Colin who wants to know, what do you make, and I just think this is, feels like it flows out of what you're just saying about climate change and the sort of like current phase of disaster we're in. What do you make of the recent turn towards cozy quote unquote disasters in art? Like melancholy is focused on the isolated main character. It comes at night's rural setting. Do you think it has to do with a desire to not exploit disaster imagery or does this show an overwhelming fear of it on the part of the artist?
0: Oh, wow. Mm. Mm. I don't know too much about this but I instantly want to like Google this like right after this event. Cozy? (laughs) Um, I mean, I will say I feel like there were points earlier on in the pandemic, and I think when we were kind of on true lockdown, when I felt like everybody in the country was really on the same page, where, where there was this kind of feeling of like cozy solidarity. And like in in Denver it snows a lot in the spring. So even when it like there's warm days, then there will be like a snowstorm and it'll get down to like 30 degrees in, you know, April or even early May sometimes. And like during those times I was like oh this is kind of nice because if I have to be stuck inside like at least it's cozy in here and I can just read my novel and like try not to think too much about global meltdown (laughs) and then like I mean the good thing about it getting warmer and things like opening up a little bit is like I started to like see some friends and that's good for the psyche and go on walks more and stuff like that but um I, I did kind of miss that like coziness where i mean i think that's just regression probably <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if when you were a kid you ever fantasized about like living in like a really small house but i did like i i i wanted like a tiny round house with like a fireplace and like a chair and like a fridge <laughs> like all in um, all in reach and and i liked really small i mean i think kids in general like really small spaces but like i liked i had an armchair in my room and instead of sitting in the chair to read i would go behind it because it was like in a corner <laughs> and the and the back slope so it was like a little kind of tent space oh, back yeah. there yeah like a little kind of conical <laughs> little hut back there that i and i would sit back there to read and i was just you know like rereading the same books that i loved probably for the 20th time um so i do think you know that like when I hear cozy I think of that like that safe like go back to the womb (laughs) protect me thing um like I'm not out in the open where the asteroid's gonna hit me yeah, yeah. But like, like I, said, I want to immediately look this up because I don't really know a lot about this.
3: Yeah, I mean, same. I used to fantasize <laughs> about living in a cottage. I, I grew up on a farm and so it was, I was never far from <laughs> cottage in reality in retrospect. Um, I mean, I do think that there is this kind of like cozy slash cottage core creep in all yeah. genres of art somehow.
0: Right, because cozy mysteries I know about.
3: Yes. Like the British
0: and I, cozy murders or
3: whatever. Cozy, I mean, there is something really unsettling about <laughs> the sort of proximity between like cozy comforts and and calamities but I do think that there is something I don't know if it I don't know if it was like is a fear of like facing the full horrific brunt of like disasters Mm -hmm. Um, but I do think that there is something to that idea of like Making it palatable to mass audiences for mass media. So you're going to put Emily Blunt in like a really large cow neck cardigan while she hides <laughs> in the woods from the aliens that are coming to eat her and her family, right? Like everyone's yeah. always dressed kind of like shabby chic and these kinds of especially in like melancholia which is all about the aesthetics it's not even about the disaster like the, the disaster oh, yeah. is subordinate to like the aesthetic experience of beauty <laughs> and such and such things yeah i don't know that's those are my thoughts about cozy who
2: doesn't want a cardigan and a cottage <laughs> i love that um us so here uh, i think that these are like a good two questions to end on one looking forward and one looking back um Uh, Speaking about what you were saying, Brendan, about um, constructing disaster in retrospect or standing outside of history, not to imply that there's a disaster issue here, um, Adelina wants to know, or no, um, Monica wants to know, can, no, what's up with the question I want to ask is, Marilyn's question, how would you qualify the continuum, Elisa, or the common ground of all your books? Sorry, I
3: blinked out for
2: a second. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The continuum of all my books? Yeah, like, what do they have in common, looking back?
0: Oh, um, yeah. I, well, I think I have, yeah, certain obsessions that are absolutely present in all of them. Memory is a good, but even more just, like, the sort of construction of the self, like, which tends to be based in memory, of course, because, like, what else do we have besides memory? Like, even the present is just swiftly becoming memory. Um, so, yeah, all of my poetry is is very like obsessively about that. Um, I th- just actually let me let me just two things. <laughs> my favorite things in the world are like language and thinking. So <laughs> um, I like thinking, I like thinking about thinking, I like thinking about language. I like writing about thinking. <laughs> I like writing about <laughs> language because writing is like thinking through language with language. Um, those are my absolute favorite things and so like all my writing is just kind of an excuse to do that so Mm -hmm. when I write criticism I'm like thinking through the best way to express in language my thoughts about the book which of course is language that represents somebody else's thinking Um, and I guess you could say that everything is this but it's like to the degree that like if I'm going to play a game like i want to play scrabble or do a crossword like i'm not interested in puzzles even remotely they're not verbal enough too visual i don't really like instagram because it's so visual i prefer twitter because it's verbal <laughs> uh, so like i think you you'll find that kind of obsession with language and thinking in all my books 100%
3: yeah i agree with that totally
2: <laughs> all, all right last question um, and this I'll turn to you both. Uh, Adelina wants to know, have you developed any new obsessions since publishing this book? So this is maybe more-
3: Are we not answering another book? Oh. What, what are we oh, doing? Are
2: you, am I here? Can you, did I mute nope. myself?
3: <laughs> am I here? I can,
0: hear, I can hear you, yeah.
3: Oh, yeah. Oh, I, am I supposed to answer that question? No, no.
2: I think that's all, I'm just if I that that to, turn really to both that of question. you.
3: But I certainly gonna... can answer it, I mean. I don't know the con- the continuum of my books is just like gays being sad in the Midwest so far.
2: I think we have to make a book for section. That's for that. yeah,
3: that's the sum of it. Grad school is a miserable experience. Don't ever do it. Um, parts one and two. Yeah.
2: Um,
0: yeah. I I do have a new obsession since this okay. book. Um, well, not since this came out because it came out. Um, yeah, last week, but since like I've stopped working on it because it was definitely 100% done in April um, and it's been the pandemic obviously the whole time. I've become really obsessed with reading writers on like despair and depression. <sighs> um, yeah, as I, earlier this year, I read uh, Yi Young Yi's book, um, Dear Friend from My Life, I write to you in my life. Have you read that Brandon? It's so I good.
3: have, it's, a, it's she's a genius.
0: So good. And so she like, she wrote it when she was going through a period of like very um, like, like suicidal depression. Um, and it's, but it's really all about kind of the books, especially that she turns to in times of despair and like her favorite books to reread and reading, especially writers letters and journals and that kind of personal collection, connection she feels to that material. Um, and I love that and I I spent a lot of this summer reading this gigantic biography of Sylvia Plath that <laughs> that I just wrote about. Um, and obviously, you know, Sylvia Plath struggled with depression her whole life. Yeah, um, Yeah. so I I feel like that's something I want to write about at some point. I don't know, because I, I like, probably a lot of you have been feeling despair for much of this year. <laughs> and so, yeah, like, using writing and books as a way to kind of get me through despair, like, you know, just kind of telling myself, as long as I have books, like, so worth being alive.
3: <laughs> That's such a beautiful thought. That's so beautiful. <laughs> I cannot wait to read that. Drop the link when it's ready, Elisa. On sad things. Oh, I will. <laughs> I feel like this was your book on dread and the mortal yeah. condition, and now you're gonna do sadness and the mortal yes. condition. <laughs>
0: Yes, I have to. It's
2: the natural progression. Absolutely. I mean, I mean Camry has <laughs> thoughts about that, I'm sure. <laughs> Something to look forward to. Any obsession from you, Brandon, before we close? Recent obsession? I don't know what happened. I don't know. I think we're Is having Is some- coming back. I think, think ha- I think you can hear me. I think we're having some technical issues. Can you hear me, Elisa? <laughs> Yes. The question,
0: Brandon, was, do you have any new obsessions?
3: Oh, oh. see, this is, okay, this explains it. I blinked out before and I missed this part. Um, New obsessions, yes. (laughs) I am, I'm currently obsessed with um, Patagonia, the outwear band, like the outwear, the outerwear (laughs) sports brand that's all about sustainability. Um, And I keep watching their videos on how their clothes are made which to me means that I'm going to be writing a story (laughs) about the people who make the Patagonia things or people who wear Patagonia. That's like normally how, that's normally how I know I'm on the edge of like a new project is like when I start watching like one kind of thing on YouTube exclusively and it's been Patagonia and like Dior, like those are like the two, (laughs) the two things fighting it out in my, in my obsessive mind right now. So um, you'll know when I like show up and I'll be like, at least I've written five new stories about Dior. and Patagonia,
0: Patagonia story. <laughs>
3: <laughs> About Patagonia and farmers and um, fly oh, fishermen. Um, so absolutely
0: look forward I'm, to that.
3: I'm in a real outerwear kind of mood <laughs> in my YouTube
2: watching. Um, this has been so good. I'm coming back on video so I can say goodnight to y'all oh. thank you. Um, thank we you. Are. thank uh, you. Thank you all so much. Everyone loves you, Elisa. Join us. <laughs> Everyone loves you, Elisa. Everyone yes, loves you. Brandon. You're a genius,
3: and we love you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone you. should buy Elisa's brilliant new book. You can you click the link to- down below. Yeah, we it, yeah. <laughs> Wherever the button is, you should buy it. It's amazing. It fixed my brain. It just, <laughs> oh. I have thoughts all the time now, and that wasn't how it felt before.
0: <laughs> You're welcome.
3: Thank you, Elisa, for fixing me. Thank
0: you. Thank you for reading the book and talking to me about it. That was so wonderful. Oh, and my thank gosh. You so much.
3: Of course. Thank and you so thank much you, Agnes, here. who crushed it.
0: Yes. yes. Oh. <laughs> okay. Thank you,
2: <laughs> thank you for being okay. here. Good night. Good night. Do well. Okay. Good night, okay. everybody. Bye.